It's good to see all of you. Happy Mother's Day. Um, There's the one commonality that we all have is that we all have had a mother. Everybody has had a mother. And today is a day that we've set aside to honor our mothers um, and all mothers as one of God's greatest gifts to us. We can never repay our mothers. They have... uh, they have served us, they've cared for us, they've taught us, they've nurtured us, they've trained us, they've <coughs> loved us. Uh, we're all witnesses. Warned us. They've warned you. Yes, they've warned you. And that's a, that's a mighty thing. And they've done this uh, without pause, without break, 24-7, uh, our mothers. And so we give thanks to all the mothers that are here. All the spiritual mothers that are here, amen, thank you. Um, and, and, and it's going to tie into the rest of the message when I think about you've, you've all witnessed the life of a, of a mother. And some of our mothers have been godly examples and some of our mothers maybe have not been. But um, they have served us nonetheless. Uh, that's the first topic. The second topic is a brief introduction to our Peru mission that's coming up in less than a, in less than a month, we'll be in Peru, and um, I'm not exactly sure how this happened. It'll be our 17th year. They invite us to come back every year. We we don't push our way through the door. We tell them, hey, if you want us to come back, you have to invite us because we want to come to work with you and to serve you. Uh, and your your church's view of how you're going to reach your community. So they invite us back. We go to testify to the word of God and to the presence of God and to God's work with the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, for context, through the course of the, of the 16 years we've been, 230 people from the United States have been with us. So there's a small army of people that have been to Peru with Crosswave to serve the Lord. Many of you here have been with us. Um, for a total of about f- over 530 different trips, if you take the number of people each year and add it all together, it's 530 trips. Um, we've shared the gospel with over 60,000 people. I went back and kind of estimated um, and seen and seen thousands of people respond to the gospel. In fact, the church that we work with the most has grown from 600 people to 2,300 people in nine years. Um, because every year we give them three, four hundred names and addresses of people who have responded. And they promise us that they will go follow up with every person that's responded. So it's not like we're down to like a lone ranger and we're casting this net, but then we don't have any place to put them. I mean, they're, every place we've been, we've been, we've helped with five church plants. A teenage discipleship ministry in Raleigh, North Carolina, has helped plant five churches in Peru. Mm-hmm. I mean, Pomacochas and Nazca, Urubamba, Chinchero, and Calca. And we've worked with five established churches in San Juan, De Lorgancho, Miraflores, and Ica, and Cusco, and Chachapoyas. And this year we're adding a, a sixth church in Pacolpa, which we've never been to before. Um, key needs in Peru. Uh, I've talked to Jonathan at length about this. Um, Corruption. Corruption at every level. 
uh, in the government, in the courts, in the police, in the banks, in the mining industry. Um, even in April, a previous president, Alan Garcia, committed suicide to avoid prosecution related to bribery charges in conjunction with the Odebrecht Brazilian construction firm. The police came to his door. He said, excuse me, I need to go get something. He went to his bedroom, wrote a note, and killed himself. A president of the country. So the corruption goes deep. Uh, recently, they, they, did a, they had this sting operation, and they found that 90% of the justices in the nation were, had taken bribery taking bribes to win cases. Um, there's major political battles around the homosexual agenda where they have rewritten the textbooks to include how to train down to kindergartners, um, how to do un unimaginable things with your body or somebody else's body. And there's a big fight. The church is ri rising up and demonstrating in, in city after city. Through all the midst of all this, the economy is growing. In the past 12 years, it's been cut in half from about a poverty rate of about 50% to less than 20%. So let the good times roll. Let's do whatever we want. And a half a million Venezuelan refugees have poured into the country in the past two years. Many of them go to Lima. So a lot of dynamic flux going on. Uh, this year, we have a team of 26 going, uh, five people for the first time. So we have a veteran team. Um, and then our, our good friend Heather that works with us directly. And then 15 people from the Lima Church are going with us to Pacalpa. So there's a team of 42 people going to Pacalpa. And it's quite a sight when 42 people get off the plane and we head out. Because wherever we go, we go in mass. So you go to a city corner, and there's now there's 42 people dressed alike, or maybe we'll be in our costumes and stuff. But it's uh, it's pretty. I mean, God is the glory of the Lord is covering this place. Um, Pacalpa is east of the Andes on the. Help me out here, Ukulele, 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 like he said, river. <laughs> so it's east of the Andes Mountains. It's on the uh, Brazilian side of the Andes. This river is a major tributary of the Amazon. So if we jumped in the river, we could float up to Aikidos and we would turn right and we would float all the way down to the Atlantic Ocean, some 3,000 miles away. <laughs> uh, it's the 10th largest city in Peru, the second largest river port in the nation. It was founded in the 1840s, but the first paved road from the west only arrived in the 1940s. And the, the problem was the, the space in between was impacted by heavy rainfalls and con continued washed out what they would build. So it's hot and it's wet. The average low temperature of the year is 68. The record low temperature is 52. Record low is 52. The average high in June is 87 with a record at 97 in June. We're going to be there in June. And it is known as the jumping off point into the Amazon jungle. There are essentially no paved roads to the east of the Culpa because you go, it's about 500 feet elevation. From there you go down into the Amazon jungle. So it's a jumping off point and, and over the years Christian missionaries have used Pacolpa as their launching pad. 
to go reach the tribes in the Amazon. That's where we're going to be. Uh, the main industry is timber, fishing and agriculture, and tourism. And basically, the tourism is you come to see the rivers, you come to see the jungle, you come to see the animals, and you come to get high. There is a native hallucinogenic plant called the ayahuasca, which is Quechua. The word is translated from spirit vine. Spirit vine. And the, uh, there's a native tribe. Actually, there's two native tribes that merge together. It's about 20,000 people now. The Shipibo and the Kanibo people. And they are the ones who sort of originated these practices around this ayahuasca plant that grows in the jungle forest. And of course, now it's been fully embraced by the whole New Age crowd. This is where you go. Uh, Shamans run the show. And they are considered messengers or witnesses between the human and spirit worlds. And they are said to treat ailments or illnesses by mending the soul to restore the physical body to balance and wholeness. Now, this is not shalom. (laughs) It's a a false shalom, right? So people believe the shaman enters supernatural realms to obtain solutions to problems, to heal illnesses of the soul, and that they may visit other worlds to bring guidance to desperate souls. People who consume ayahuasca report having mystical religious experiences and spiritual revelations regarding their purpose on earth, the true nature of the universe and deep insight into how to be the best person they can be. That sounds really good, doesn't it? I mean, you think you've got a, a, a lock on what the benefits of your religion are. Everybody believes the same thing. Why do they pursue it? Um, many describe this experience as such a reawakening or spiritual rebirth that they gain access to higher spiritual planes of existence and contact with spiritual or extra-dimensional beings who act as guides, culminating in profound positive life changes. This is the travel brochure. What propaganda? And I mean, I've looked at the pictures. They've got these low dormitory-like places, and you go there and you prepare all day for the... It's best taken around sundown, sundown, you know. There is one main side effect of this plant. It's vomiting. <laughs> the, the one main side effect of the plant is vomiting. And, uh, but the shamans and the users of ayahuasca consider the purging of the digestive system, of course, to be an essential part of the experience as it represents the release of negative energy and the release of all the negative emotions built up over the course of one's life. Bourbon does something <laughs> I'm sure that there are places where you can go to the Bourbon Retreat Center and they'll tell you exactly the same thing. What, what I'm getting at here is um, there, there are, just like you were an eyewitness of your mother, there are eyewitnesses to proclaim the power of this plant, this hallucinogenic plant. And they're telling their story. They're testifying to their story. And now tourists from all over the country, all over the world, I should say, go to this place 
to vomit. That's where we're going. That's where cross. That's where God is sitting crosswave in less than a month to go. In the midst of all this, there is a, a Christian Missionary Alliance Church of about 250 people. It's, it's over 30 years old. Um, and they've asked us to come to uh, have outreach in schools and markets in the city plaza. Hopefully we'll find a little shade. Uh, and also to help them understand more about marriage and child rearing and discipling. So we'll have a couple of sessions with the church about raising children and uh, discipling young people. But the third, the third part of the message this morning is uh, sort of introduction but also uh, to let you know the power of an eyewitness testimony. Acts 2.32 says, This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. To get ready for the mission to Peru, I've asked everybody on the team to prepare a short testimony explaining how they were saved. That is, what happened such that they now believe? And without fail, I, I tell them three months ahead, you're going to share your testimony. And then when we get to Peru and it's the morning that they share, I'll say, are you ready? And they'll say, oh, no, I've not had time. I'm thinking, you've had three months. And so I would ask each of you, are you ready to share your testimony this afternoon? Get ready. Prepare yourself. Get ready. So this is not an unusual request. Um, I've also asked them to prepare a three-minute presentation of the gospel. Now, why three minutes? Well, because none of us are professional speakers, and it's going to go through a translator. So by the time you translate and they, they get nervous, it's going to be ten minutes total. And uh, you're out on the street. you, you got to get to the point quick. Here's why we're here. But don't feel bad. Um, because when you truly understand how you were saved and you understand the gospel your life will be different. Because so often in, in the South of the United States, we kind of <clears throat> grew up around this Christianity and some people really don't know how they were saved. Or they really don't know what it means to be saved. So forcing us to go back through that and, okay, this is what God did, helps us. And don't feel bad about the three-minute limitation. That's a whole lot longer than it takes to read 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8, which I'm going to do. Listen carefully. This is Paul writing to that church in Corinth. Which probably was a lot like the church in Pocahontas. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I would deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all as to one untimely born. He appeared also to me. <clears throat> I'm told by the scholars that this uh, 
that Paul received this creed from Peter and James between three to five years after the resurrection. Since they are the ones who gave this creed to Paul, we can take this statement as an eyewitness testimony. It's their statement as what they have seen. Christ came. He lived, he died, was raised according to the scriptures. He fulfilled every prophecy given about the Messiah. Paul then spends half of his time identifying people who had seen Jesus alive afterwards. Since one eyewitness could be proven wrong, Paul gives us many powerful pieces of evidence so that we can believe. His list includes witnesses who previously doubted or Peter who denied Jesus three times or the 12 who who would not believe Mary's testimony until they saw Jesus for themselves he his his list included 500 people and 500 people don't have the same hallucinogenic thoughts he 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 quoted James who was Jesus own half brother who thought Jesus was a fool and yet was converted when he saw the resurrected Christ and became a leader in the church. And Paul, who worked to attack believers to silence their stories, he's the one who became the apostle to the Gentiles. Does the fact that there are eyewitnesses who saw the risen Christ impact what you believe? There are people who saw a risen Christ. And they testify, I have seen him. Of course, their testimony impacts what we believe. These eyewitnesses saw Jesus alive is some of the strongest evidence that we have of what actually took place. This event is the most important truth in history. And it affects everything in our lives. Why is this? Because the resurrection proves that the claims Jesus made about himself are true. And what did Jesus claim? He claimed to be God. And if Jesus is God, then he speaks with absolute certainty and final authority. Therefore, everything Jesus said in the Bible is true and must be believed. And Jesus warns, maybe we consider it a promise, That he will return one day to judge every person who's ever lived. And only those who trust in him will have hope for eternal life. And what do we do if we have no credible eyewitnesses to the resurrection? In fact, of all these people who grew up, who walked with Jesus, denied the resurrection. We we have nothing. Paul spells out the impact if Jesus wasn't actually raised a little bit further in 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 19. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Half of this things of first importance Paul mentions. It's Christ fulfilled the scripture. The second half is, these are the people who saw it. They're eyewitnesses. This is what we're going to proclaim in Peru. 
we will share the evidence for why we believe and worship and serve the risen Lord Jesus, who is everything he said he is, who is still alive today. He rules all creation, yet he prays for those who believe in him and who one day will return to judge the living and the dead. Since Jesus fulfilled every prophecy given for the Messiah and many eyewitnesses confirm he rose from the dead and is alive today, we can take great confidence that all of his teachings are true and right and good. But beyond the witnesses Paul mentions here, there is another in John's gospel who really encourages me, and it's Thomas. He's also known by the name Didymus, because three times in the book of John, he mentions both names. Turns out both names have exactly the same meaning. Thomas is Hebrew or Aramaic, and it means the twin. Didymus is Greek and means, guess what? The twin. Um, <clears throat> we don't know what the twin means. Nobody seems to know. Some people say, well, he looked a lot like Jesus. <laughs> He's mentioned only a few times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, his name only being listed among the 12 apostles. But John 11 and the rest of John gives us more insight into Thomas. John 11 says, um, this is 12 through 16. And you, you tell me whether this sounds like a doubter or not. <clears throat> the disciples said, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Is that sound like a doubter? No, not at all. Here Thomas is the one. He's aware that the Jews are plotting to put Jesus to death. That when Jesus says he's going to Bethany, and Bethany was only about two miles from Jerusalem, Thomas is the one who bravely asserts that they should all go with him to die. He didn't want Jesus to die alone. He was ready to give up his life. His willingness to face death doesn't seem like a doubter, but like a courageous believer. Later in the upper room, as Jesus sought to comfort and encourage his disciples, he was explaining that he was going to be departing soon. He explained that he would go prepare a place for them. And then he would come back for them and he would take them to himself so they could be together. And this was all due to the fact that they knew the way. Well, Thomas is the brave one who asked the elephant in the room question that they all had, but were afraid to ask. Look at John 14. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? This is a setup question. Because Jesus' answer to Thomas' question is the most exclusive, certain, definite answer. It's a response 
that we still treasure and cling to today with all of our hearts. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. <clears throat> Thomas's question. We don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Was this impetus that Jesus gave us this answer? I am the way. We want the people of Peru and Pacopa to know this. That Jesus is the way. And we want people from every country to know this. We want China to know this. We want every country to know this. We want the people that live up the street here to know this. Jesus is the only way. He is the whole truth. He is the eternal life. He is the only one who provides, who can grant, who has provided access to the Father. And that by knowing Jesus, you know the Father also. But there are more testimonies in John concerning Thomas. Um, in John 20, starting in verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the others. Now, this is a five-word testimony. I have seen the Lord. This was Mary's testimony. I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. On the evening of the day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. And said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them. A reason I would stress that is because um, they've seen the Lord. He showed them hands. They saw him. They heard him speak. And then this intimate closeness of breathing on them. They were eyewitnesses to this. So even though Mary had told the disciples she had seen and heard Jesus, they huddled together in secret behind locked doors. They were afraid. These disciples were afraid. And in fear and unbelief, they ignored and disbelieved Mary's testimony. But then, without knocking, Jesus suddenly appears in the room, standing before them and speaking directly to calm their fear and says, Peace be with you. What's more, he shows them the scars in his hands and in the side, providing evidence that confirms he is the exact same man that they saw crucified. Now you would think they could recognize Jesus. They had walked with him for three years. But here he is. Taking pains to show them. His hands and his son. He was not a ghost. He was real. And then it says they were glad. <laughs> Don't you love the understatement. We find so often in the scriptures. They were glad. Then he proclaims peace again and he breathes on them with the promise of the Holy Spirit who is to come. Luke 24 says it a little bit differently, but like this, starting in verse 36. And they were, they were talking about these things. Jesus stood among them. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. 
But they were startled and frightening and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of boiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Luke makes it very clear that they saw Jesus. This was such a life changing day. It began in sadness and fear. And then there was this surprise testimony and the surprise of a tomb that was empty. No soldiers were in sight. Then Jesus appears to bless all the disciples, all except one, Thomas. Because Thomas wasn't there. He missed it. Have you ever felt all the things happened when you weren't there and you missed it? That's the eyewitness I want to talk about. The one who missed it. Maybe Thomas wasn't as afraid as the other ones were. And he was all taking care of business. Or maybe he was kicking himself for ever joining this, this tribe of people. Or maybe he hid all, all alone by himself to attract even less attention. But when he finally saw the others, they all tried to convince him with the greatest five-word group testimony ever given. We have seen the Lord. Okay, put yourself in his place. You missed it. And then all these people that you've walked with for years come up to you and say, we have seen it. We've seen it. Would you be convinced? That's what we're asking people in Peru to do. We're going to say, we have seen the Lord. Will you be convinced? So Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and I place my finger into the mark of the nails, And place my hand into his side. I will never believe. It's one thing to see a scar. It's quite another matter to put your finger into the scar. To verify that what you're seeing is real. We've all got places in our body that we don't like. And there's a little bump or whatever. We put it, we check, make sure it's still there you know, every day. Oh, yeah, it's still there. That he, he, <clears throat> Thomas is saying, I don't trust my eyes on this type of decision. Rebecca reminded me of you. <laughs> Rebecca, <clears throat> when she 
experience something for the first time, she didn't just want to see it. She wanted to touch it. And that's what Thomas, he wanted to touch the scar material on his hands. I'm belaboring this point because what happens is of tremendous importance to us all. He says, unless I see... Have you ever missed something great? Of course. Then people later try to convince you of what you missed. Sometimes you acquiesce, but sometimes your back bows up and you double down on what your position, like Thomas seemed to do. He doubled down. He said, unless I see in his hands and touch the scar and put my hands in the side, I will never believe. That sounds like a vow to me. He made a vow to not believe unless he sees something. But then Jesus is full of mercy and grace. He didn't leave Thomas in misery all alone. Verse 26, eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came in and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he turned to Thomas and said, put your finger here and see my hands. See, he started, he didn't start with see, he started with put. Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And then the man who said, unless I will never believe, unless I see this, I'll never believe, says immediately, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus, full of mercy and grace again, says to him, have you believed because you have seen me? And then Jesus gives I think it could be the ninth beatitude. It's the misplaced beatitude. It's not on the Sermon on the Mount. It's right here. And this is what we pray as we go to Peru. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Doesn't that sound like a beatitude? Blessed are the poor in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Just to finish up this one chapter. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Thomas is a special witness for us. So let's consider and believe the evidence. He is a converted eyewitness. His testimony basically was also five words. I will never believe unless he gave himself a condition. I will never believe you unless. Very specific things and very intimate, provable things. Jesus met his conditions exactly. Without being asked. Because he foreknew the evidence that Thomas needed. And consider the mercy and grace that Jesus displayed to answer Thomas' questions exactly. Not only to see, but to allow himself to be touched. To touch the scars in his hands and touch the scar in his side. 
When you, when you read Thomas says, my Lord and my God, you are reading the testimony of man who said, I won't believe unless this happens and then this happened. And that this was seeing the scars and touching the scars. You have Thomas's assurance that he saw the risen Christ. <clears throat> but none of the disciples believed Mary's word. They only believed Jesus. They only believed that Jesus had risen from the dead when they finally had seen him themselves. Now, John did believe when he saw the tomb was empty. That was the piece of evidence that John needed. I saw the empty tomb and he believed. But they all had evidence of some sort. Jesus blesses those who believe without having seen for themselves. And that's all of us. We're blessed. We are blessed. If Jesus' closest associates who walked with him for three years needed proof that he was a risen Lord, then what do we have? The evidence that we have are the testimonies of these who were there. The men and women who lived in his presence, who saw him, heard him, and touched him. And then we have the evidence of their lives that were transformed from that moment until their deaths, or should I say their murders, their martyrs. These are our signs. Those signs are our signs. Those miracles, they're our miracles. We are now witnesses. John wisely gives us this account of Thomas's conversion. The one who said, I will never believe. Who was then completely changed to believe and to worship Jesus as Lord and God. What could have caused that transformation in Thomas' life? Meeting the need that he had to, to see it, to touch him. John wrote the believing witness of someone who said, I will never believe unless this happens. What's more, John gives this testimony in, in, for himself and others in First John, the first letter. And he starts off the whole letter with this. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, was made present among us. And we have seen it and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, is present with us, that which we have seen and heard. He, he can't say it enough. We've seen it. We've heard it. He was in our presence. We touched it. We, it touched, we touched eternal life. We proclaim this to you. That you may too have fellowship with us. John's evidence. What they had heard and seen and touched. That which was made manifest in the presence gives evidence to those who come later to believe so we might enjoy fellowship. We enjoy fellowship with Peter and John through the Spirit of God. And there's brothers and sisters in China and everywhere else. We can't physically see and touch the wounds of the resurrected Christ. But we know someone who did. We have the testimonies of those who did. And these are not easily convinced or biased witnesses. 
These were people whose whole lives were uprooted. They had feared and denied and doubted and persecuted and yet more. And yet in every case, they were radically and completely transformed. We have to give evidence to these eyewitness accounts. If you were in a court of law, this would be a slam dunk. We're not in a court of law. We're in the court of public opinion. And public opinion says, well, faith is, you don't have to have evidence to believe. But truly, it's just the opposite. The saving faith is trusting the good evidence that God has given. This is the faith we pray for the people we meet in Peru to receive. That they will be blessed by receiving in Jesus, by by believing in Jesus who they've never seen. It seems impossible. And with man, it is impossible. But this is God's plan. And with him, all things are possible. Just to conclude, uh, John is not the only one who writes about this. Paul is not the only one who writes about this. Peter also speaks to this. I'll read a couple of passages. In Acts 10, Peter speaking, he says, But God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear. Made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge, to be the judge of the living and the dead. And in 1 Peter 1, though you have not seen him, you love him. (coughs) Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And then the second letter, Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. When you prepare your testimony, you give your elevator testimony. Bear witness to the living Christ. And know that you have you have the evidence of these people whose, whose accounts say, I saw him. I saw the resurrected Jesus. I didn't only see him. I watched him eat food. I didn't only watch him eat food. I heard him speak. I didn't just hear him speak and watch him eat food and see him. I touched him. And I didn't just touch him. I touched where the nails went in him. That is the man who now lives. Hmm. Hallelujah. Lord, I pray that you'd give us all a testimony and Lord we thank you for blessing we who've never seen Jesus blessing us Father that we might believe you and Lord we we give you praise that you have have this written testify these men and women who've testified I have seen the Lord we have seen the Lord He appeared also to me, Paul says. 
Lord, I pray in your dynamic, merciful, holy way that their testimony would be our testimony. We could embrace the signs you gave them as the signs you've given us through them. Or we would embrace the miracles you performed among them, through them, as miracles that we might see as evidence and proof. Lord, even if we were to perform miracles every day, they would not supplant, Lord, what you have done through these. And even if we never see a miracle performed, Lord, we have miracles through the witness of these eyewitnesses. Lord, I pray that you would help the Peru team to bear witness of the risen Christ. That one day he will come to judge the living and the dead. But Lord, if we put our faith and hope with him now, we have the blessing of his life and fellowship now, but we have the hope of eternal life forever. Lord, I ask that you would cause your word to, to grow within us and that we might give you praise here on this Mother's Day. Lord, make us eyewitnesses of your glory. For pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.